Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by Northwestern Community Services Prevention and Wellness. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention and wellness specialist here in Virginia. Our goal is to bring you stories of people who are engaging in their communities in meaningful ways, to hopefully inspire and encourage you to seek those connections in your own community. Hello, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. It's been a bit since our last episode, but I'm happy to be back today and excited to welcome Dr. Melissa Goldberg-Mintz to the show. Dr. Goldberg-Mintz is a psychologist, author, and mother of two based out of Texas. Dr. Goldberg-Mintz owns a small private practice, Secure-Based Psychology, and holds the title of Clinical Assistant Professor at Baylor College of Medicine. She is also the author of Has Your Child Been Traumatized? How to Know and What to Do to Promote Healing and Recovery. In her work, Dr. Goldberg-Mintz is committed to highlighting the importance of connection and providing families with the tools to move from, in her words, traumatization to empowerment. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, Dr. Goldberg-Mintz, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited too. For our listeners, this has been a long time coming, so we're glad to finally be sitting down. Let's just start with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, the work you do, and the path you took to get here. Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist and mom of two young kids, ages four and two. I have a private practice here in Houston. I also teach a little bit at Baylor College of Medicine and am the author of the book, Has Your Child Been Traumatized? Let's see. So in terms of my path to get here... So I don't know how far back you want to go, but I knew I wanted to be a psychologist in high school. My philosophy teacher assigned us this project called the Happiness Project, where we had to interview, I think it was something like 40 people about the meaning of happiness and just about different experiences in their lives. And I just was so blown away by that. I thought it was so fun and so engaging. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a way I could do this with my career. So that's what got me started, really. But very early on in graduate school, I had a really unique opportunity to work as part of a clinical trial for trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and learned right away that I just loved, I loved the treatment of trauma. When we first met, you said something along the lines of that, like that that time felt like magic. And I loved when you said that, because I, I know that feeling of connection to a type of work or a type of practice of just like, oh, this is, this is it. So tell me more about what that was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was green, I was so green and young, and I just didn't have a ton of experience. And getting these cases with these adverse events. And you know, what we know about adverse events is that most kids before they hit 18 will experience at least one adverse event. But some of the stuff I was seeing was was not sort of like, in the norm, and was just a little overwhelmed, to be frank. But seeing how well the model worked and just gave these kids so many awesome skills and just really helped them you know, feel good about themselves, but also like in a very clinical way, decrease their post-traumatic stress symptoms. I was like, okay, I'm sold. I love the idea of like you witnessing this very real tangible change that's happening because of what we know about the brain and what we know about trauma mixed with that personal feeling of like, I found it. This is it. Like that buzzy 
you know, here's what I want to do with my life, which is so exciting. Absolutely. I want to get into the content of your book soon, but first I want to, I just would love to hear what the process was of, okay, here's this work I've been doing for years. I need to put this down in writing. I need to put some of the lessons I've learned. Like, what was that like for you? Sure. So honestly, it started because I was looking for a resource for parents of kids that I was working with. And there are so many amazing books out there about how to raise resilient children. But I was looking for, okay, like, what if it's already too late? What if the child has already been exposed to something and they're not feeling particularly resilient? You know, what do you do after your child has been exposed to adversity and you don't even know if they've been traumatized? And I couldn't find much out there. So that was sort of what got me going on. Like, okay, maybe I write this book. Yeah, seeing the the need for it and saying, mm. I'm going to try and step into that arena. That might be exactly that might be what I meant to do. Yeah. That's really cool. I what you just said strikes me as really important because um such a specific tool. It's not your book is not a it's not really a bird's eye view. It's really like, hey, let's dive into some examples of this. Let's dive into what it looks like in the day to day now and in the future. I mean, your book spans time for the children it's talking about. And I I think that's important. And then I, the real work of the book is this concept of traumatization to empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, what you said of the gap of having books of like, what about when it's too late to almost say, it's not too late, but what about when, right. when something's happened that needs to be addressed? So that's a long way of asking why you chose that wording that is in here a couple of times of traumatization to empowerment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. And so first I want to, there's like a common myth out there or a very like popular quote. And I talk about this in the book a little bit, this idea of like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I actually don't love that idea at all because gosh, I just think that sets up these expectations for something horrible happens and then you're going to be even stronger for it. I, I don't think that is like sort of the natural way that things happen. And at the same time, for kids who experience something that was really difficult or scary or terrifying for them, if they can learn to turn to their parents in those times of turbulence, it will really enhance the parent-child relationship, build self-esteem. So it has the potential to to leave families, entire families, feeling empowered. And that's again, really the heart of this book is that connection. Like what a connection to even one parent, guardian, important adult figure can be for a child. Nothing we love more on this podcast than talking about connection and community. So I'd just love for you to share why that is so crucial to healing. Mm, Connection. Yes, absolutely. You know, like, so I have I have a mentor, actually, John Allen, who wrote the foreword of my book. And I met him during my postdoctoral fellowship at the Menninger Clinic. And we would co-facilitate this group together. Uh, and he would start every single group with the exact same quote. And that was, the single best way we know how to deal with emotional pain is through connecting to people that we feel securely attached to. And throughout my career, I just, man, like that has just been proven true time and time again. I think, gosh, just there's something about the healing power of connection as human beings. It's the best medicine we've got. 
And it doesn't take a career in clinical psychology to recognize that, right? Like that proves true in our day to day, I think, no matter what field we're in. Yes. Yes. So true. A hundred percent. There's, yeah. I mean, there's this interesting study done by a neuroscientist and I am blanking on the name right now. So I'll have to look that up. But uh, he did a study where women were administered electric shocks and there were a few different conditions, one where they could like hold their partner's hand and one where they did not have a hand to hold. And the women who had a hand to hold, and especially when it was their partners, they fared a lot better and experienced pain differently. So gosh, I just think, yeah, there's so much evidence, not just in therapy, but in research and everywhere. Absolutely. Something I feel like kind of a tired subject at this point is talking about how, well, maybe that's not fair. It's tired because we keep needing to talk about it is how much the pandemic interrupted our ability to connect with others, how much it sort of showed us the need that we have to connect with others and prevented that in a lot of settings. But this book is really about those connections within the home. And for many people, that wasn't interrupted. We were spending more time than ever (laughs) with the people in our home. So I would just love to hear your thoughts kind of on, on what that has looked like in the last couple of years. This book has come to be (laughs) since the pandemic, like just what's the connection between all of that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, it is so complex. (laughs) So, oh, wow. It just really runs the gamut. So there were kids who were traumatized in the pandemic because of things they witnessed at home. So what we know is that, you know, with all the increased stress, there were increased rates of domestic violence and substance abuse and things like that. So that certainly drove up trauma. But then also there were families particularly when we're thinking about like financial privilege and things like that. I've had some patients come in and tell me like, oh my goodness, the pandemic was the best time in my life. Like I just got to spend so much quality time with my kids that I never would have had the chance to otherwise. And it was just lovely. So gosh, yeah, I think for some families, it was just incredibly challenging and drove up stress and that drove apart connections. And for others, you know, just due to privilege or financial resources or what have you, they were able to take advantage of it in a different way. And so, you know, we saw some good things and we saw some challenging things. Yeah. Things we'll, we'll probably be working through for a long time to come. Mm -hmm. So I am not a parent and I don't interact with youth in my own work, but I, you know, what you wrote about much of it feels applicable to me beyond the parent child relationship something I especially connected with in the book was the concept of modeling, like how to show, you know, really, again, just by connecting and sharing, like empowering others to care for themselves by showing the ways that you're caring for yourself. So I think specifically the part I'm remembering is you're talking, I think it's later in the book, you're talking about like, if you're, if you were to notice your child is struggling again, like maybe they've moved through sort of the initial aftermath of that trauma and they've they've received the resources that they need to be healing and they sort of have kind of like a bump in the road to say, you know, when I'm struggling, it's really helpful for me to talk with a friend or I just came back from my therapy session and it was really good for me this week. And it's so simple, but it is so meaningful. And I would just love to hear you talk more about that piece of the book specifically. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, so I think in that particular example you brought up, it's modeling, but it's also normalizing. So normalizing going to therapy is a big one, but also normalizing like, yeah, when I have a hard day, I talk to a friend and it feels better. Like this is not something that, you know, we need to keep inside. Like it's very normal to, to want to share with people and then to feel some relief after we do so. And it is hard to be alone. Like, you know, these feelings are hard enough on their own, but to deal with them, like without that kind of support, oh my goodness. You are a parent and yeah. you've been doing this work for a long time, pre, pre-holding that identity. And um, I would just love to hear your reflection on how those identities in your work and your personal life have intersected and how they've impacted one another. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, okay. I have a funny story that I, I like to share sort of on that note. So I think of myself as like a very sensitive parent, like try to be very attuned to my kids' needs. And I think sometimes overly so. So I think I take it in the other direction. But, and I wrote an article for Newsweek about this, but there's one day, this is actually during the pandemic, that my daughter was like crawling under a glass table or something to get a toy. And I was about to call out like, careful baby, like, you know, I didn't want her to bump her head. But then I heard her talking to herself, careful, baby, careful, baby. And she was not even two years old at this point. And she really internalized my words to her. So she like grew as she was growing up. She was just this like very sweet, also very cautious kiddo who wasn't going to do anything that could get herself hurt. So I saw it like on the playground, you know, she didn't want to like race down these like steep slides with her friends because she was careful. And where did she get that from? You know, her wonderful psychologist mother who totally like missed like, okay, wait, this message is going to get internalized. And she's going to feel like she has to be careful all the time. And so yeah, so I think that, you know, like, my clinical experience has definitely afforded me a lot of wisdom. But oh, my goodness, I miss the mark sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I would guess that you're you know, your clinical work impacts your parenting, but in the same way, your parenting must now have, have changed, you know, the work that you're doing, the perspective you hold when you're talking to parents to really be able to connect with their care for their child. You know, they always say that you can't understand that until you become a parent yourself. So I just imagine that's like really kind of open doors for you. If I had to guess, I'm throwing an experience at you, I guess, (laughs) by saying that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think the number one way it's impacted me is, you know, like in graduate school, one thing that we learn is you got to separate the person from the behavior. So just because somebody does something that's like jerk move, that doesn't mean they're a jerk. It's just, you know, this was a behavior that isn't who they are as a person. But I really believe in this philosophy of like, there are no bad kids, you know, and just because your kid does something that gets under your skin, they are not a bad kid. And, you know, whenever we're trying to understand kid behavior, like, let's try and understand the function of it. Like, this is not a bad kid. But, you know, why might your kid have done this or that? I would love for you to speak more to uh, the function of the behavior, because that's a concept that I learned in grad school. But I'm like, how have I never heard this? And all, you know, all the families I've been around, my own family, like also many years in public school, like never a concept that was at the forefront. So I would love for you to explain that to listeners. 
Oh, yes, definitely. So the function of the behavior is like, what's driving the behavior? So, you know, if a kid is acting out or being disruptive at home or at school, like, like, first, remind yourself, this is not a bad kid. And let's get curious about why this kid is behaving the way that they are. You know, there's a lot of different drivers of behavior. Commonly, you know, we all have needs for attention. And there is nothing bad about that. We all need love. We all need attention. That is extremely human. And if those needs for attention aren't being met, it might make sense to ramp up your behavior to escalate a little bit to try and get a response. So that might be one example of function of behavior. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my hope is that any listener who's enjoying hearing what you have to say would look into reading the book. But I I would love your kind of cliff notes version of what you would say to a parent who is struggling with a child that's been traumatized, they're trying, you know, that's such a, I imagine could be a really isolating place to be. Definitely. Uh, what would you like, what wisdom would you impart to say like, Hey, there is hope in this. There can be empowerment in this time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So first I would just say you're not alone. So again, the adverse events happening to children. So more common than not. And what we know is actually that the majority of children after experiencing a potentially traumatic event, go on to heal on their own without even needing therapy. So I know it feels really scary. And what we know is that by and large, especially if a kiddo has got like one parent that they feel securely attached to. And when I say parent, I mean caregiver of any kind. It doesn't need to be mom or dad. But if a kid's got that, then you know, there's good reason to feel hopeful. Now, that doesn't mean that some kids don't need therapy and therapy can be a, an extremely helpful tool, especially if you've got a kiddo who's got symptoms that, you know, it's been over a month and they don't seem to be fading at all. Then, okay, let's consider adding therapy to the mix. But by and large, kids do get better. Kind of recognizing that natural resilience that we all carry, the ability to heal and continue on with like the really real need for resources a lot of the time and for supports. Absolutely. So there's a wealth of resources that you have listed in your book. I mean, just in the explanations that you give and then in at the end of the book, an actual yeah. resource guide. I'm wondering if there are any specific ones that you'd love to highlight for, for folks who are listening and are interested in learning more. Oh, definitely. So there, I'll tell you the ones I use myself with my kids. <laughs> so at the back of the book, let me just open it right now. But there's one called Mashi, Mashi Kids Sleep and Meditation. So I use that with my kids every night. They have these wonderful little sleep stories and they really help just help kids wind down. So this is like if you've got a traumatized kid, but also, you know, in the absence of trauma, it can be helpful because winding down for the night, you know, is a struggle for many parents. So I love Mashi Kids. But, you know, there's so many different things in here, too. So there's, let's see, you know, for all the listeners who have Apple Watches, there's like a little breathing device on there that can be really helpful. The Calm app is great. Breathe, Think, and Do with Sesame Street is also great. And Wellamental Kids Mindfulness. So those are all some some great resources that I would encourage parents to check out. And again, this isn't specific to trauma. I think this is something that every kid could benefit from. Yeah. And and even I would say, again, as someone who doesn't have kids for 
folks who aren't parents, we've talked before on the show about community parenting and like what it is to be engaged in the lives of young people, whether that's, you know, family members or your friends who have kids or in the workplace. It's, I mean, I, I enjoyed the book and I'm not parenting a traumatized child. So that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And on that note, I want to add that the other night I woke up in the middle of the night and was unable to go back to sleep. So I put on a Mashi story for myself and it worked. (laughs) (laughs) That's some inner child stuff. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. Awesome. Well, I would, I would love to wrap up here with asking you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Hmm, Good question. So awareness to action. So, you know, I think awareness. So, okay. When we think about therapy, sometimes, especially in talk therapy, we think about making the unconscious conscious. And so in my mind, that is sort of like exemplifies the awareness piece. Like you're becoming aware of something, but once you have the awareness, it's what do you do with that awareness? And so in terms of child trauma and in terms of this book, I think awareness is, you know, you become aware of how common adverse events are in children. You become aware of what trauma looks like and what the signs and the symptoms are. And then, you know, especially in like the second half of the book, it's like, well, what do you do about it? What kind of action can we take? You know, how can we help? And a lot of the skills I highlight in here, I mean, I write it in a way that it's like, you know, caregivers to kids, but like what to do when you're triggered that can, anyone can use that. And these are skills that I encourage people of all ages to use. Absolutely. And I think when we're able to use these skills, regulate ourselves, like recognize those triggers, then we, we provide better care and better relationships and better connection to the people around us, children or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for writing this book. I, I think it's a really useful resource and I'm sure it's, you know, there's probably a lot of parents out there who are like, Oh, look, the book that exactly what I've been asking. Like, how am I supposed to do this? And I just, I love, I really admire it when someone sees a need and is like, you know what? I, maybe I'm the one to be able to do this. So thanks for all of it. Well, thank you. It's been so great getting to talk to you about this. Yeah. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Goldberg Mintz for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can catch the rest of the conversations we have in store for Season 3.